Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver are now safely back in Canada after more than a thousand days detained in China. Their release three weeks ago highlighted the tense relationship between Canada and China and also how it impacts our politics and our economy. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. National Post reporter Tom Blackwell joins me to discuss the state of Canada-China affairs, the political fallout, and the fate of another Canadian languishing in a Chinese prison. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Tom, just about three weeks ago, the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver, returned to Canada. And these are two men, for those who who may not recall, (laughs) spent three years, roughly, imprisoned in China on what were ultimately probably dubious charges of espionage and likely related to Canada's detention of Meng Wanzhou, a high-ranking official with the Chinese tech firm Huawei, which, as we all know, has ties to the Chinese government. For many, this detention brought Canada-China relations to the forefront of the collective consciousness in the country. But, you know, even with the end of that saga for those two men, there's still a lot of issues to kind of untangle between Canada and China. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, as someone who has covered their story and has covered other stories related to Canada-China relations, like, what is the relationship like currently between our country and what is ultimately one of the biggest superpowers in the world? That's a big question and a complicated <laughs> one, and and it depends on, on what you mean by our relationship w- with China. I mean, certainly this government in particular, the, the liberal government, and, and to a lesser extent, the previous Harper government did try to sort of forge fairly close relations with China, I think, recognizing that things had, had changed, obviously, since the opening up in, in the late 1980s. And, you know, it is now the second biggest economy in the world. And it's a place that is hard to ignore as, as a trading partner. And in fact, it is Canada's second biggest trading partner. So in, in that sense, the government has, until three years ago, tried to, to sort of broadly engage China. I mean, that, that sort of, in, it's in some ways all changed with the Meng Wanzhou, Two Michaels affair, if you can call it that. Canadians generally and, and, and the government sort of kind of opened their eyes to a different aspect of China. I think we've all been impressed at, at how China has, has risen economically and, you know, hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of poverty, et cetera, et cetera. But I, th- I think we were have been reminded in the last few years about the autocratic nature of the government and, you know, its abuses of human rights. So, I mean, I think that's for ordinary Canadians and, and for the for government that was in favor of engagement, I, I think that has, has changed things quite a lot. Freeing of the of the two Michaels is, is a big event, but it's unclear to what extent that will sort of heal the rift going forward. One of the things that people probably took notice of, and I'm wondering if you can speak to this at all, is the idea that while we import a lot from China and we also want to export a lot to China, we want to export raw materials, we want to export natural gas and, and oil to China, that the affair between with Meng Wanzhou and the two Michaels has has kind of shown how fragile the relationship between the two countries is. And and a lot of that is, I think, on the the part of concerns over 
how China will react to what we do. Is it kind of an asymmetrical relationship as far as that goes that we need to be wary of how we respond to them? Or is that a fear in how the government deals with a country like China? The assumption is always that, that Canada is a small power, uh, China is a, is a superpower. I mean, so, you know, it, it's hard for Canada on its own to confront China on a, on a lot of these issues. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of experts who are skeptical about the relationship and, and critical of the Chinese government will say there, there is lots to be, to be wary about, you know, in terms of how China tries to exert its influence in Canada, how it conducts trade with Canada and deals with Canadian businesses, you know, allegedly how it how it even interferes in covertly in, in Canadian politics. So there are examples of other small powers like Australia that that have sort of taken a uh, a tougher stance and sort of tried to stand up to China. But yeah, I think there's always a fear of of what the response will be, especially when. We are now so economically, you know, tightly linked with China. There's two faces to this relationship, right? There's this political relationship, and I know that that there's been, you know, a lot of hue and cry in Canada over being tough on China on its human rights abuses, on its handling of the two Michaels affair, like the the idea of this arbitrary detention of two Canadians because we acceded to the request of the United States to pick up a Huawei official on criminal charges for extradition. The idea that perhaps we're not as tough on China as some would like to see relating to its treatment of the Uyghur uh, minority. And on the flip side, there's this idea that, you know, we want to have an open economic relationship with this massive economy. Canada's ambassador to China actually waded into this sticky relationship recently with some comments that, you know, even despite the concern about the two Michaels and the concern about human rights abuses, that Canadian companies should look for opportunities right now. What was it that our ambassador said and how was that received here? I imagine it was received well in China, but how was it received in Canada? It was an interesting talk that Dominic Barton, the uh, the Canadian ambassador to Beijing, gave. And this is part of a, uh, a seminar that the Canada-China Business Council, which is sort of the biggest business group linking the two countries, held about four days after the two Michaels returned to Canada and, and Meng Wanzhou returned to, to China. So shortly after the whole thing became resolved. And now this was, just to be clear, this was a talk that Dominic Barton, the ambassador, recorded before the release, but still it was, you know, prepared in the midst of, of you know, apparent negotiations or trying to, to end this crisis, um, which he was apparently quite involved in. It was striking when I came across this because, uh, yeah, at this time when we were so focused on dealing with, with what seemed to be a case of sort of hostage diplomacy, as it's called, you know, uh, Barton sort of very um, enthusiastically in this talk promoted the idea of, of doing business with China, pointing out the fact that trade has actually, uh, in the last year or so, has actually increased uh, despite all the political problems between the two countries. And he said, you know, essentially that businesses cannot ignore China, that, that you have to take advantage of this, that it's even important, crucial to Canada's economic prosperity that we engage 
economically with China. He sort of encouraged businesses to check out the most recent Chinese five-year plan, you know, sort of for tips on where to to seek out business opportunities. So it was it was kind of striking that in the midst of all this angst over the uh, the two Michaels affair, that that he was uh, in, encouraging businesses in this way. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it did go over well in China. Um, I first found out about this through reading a, a, a China Daily story about the the seminar. That's a state-run newspaper. Some critics of the Chinese government here were kind of dismayed by his comments. I think partly the you know the timing of them. Uh, and also the the fact that he so enthusiastically was promoting business relations at a time when we know about so many troubling aspects of Chinese policy in terms of human rights, in terms of, you know, crackdown on democracy in, in Hong Kong, you know, safe rattling with, with Taiwan, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, attempts to influence uh, Canadian affairs as well. So I've, I talked to David Mulroney, a former ambassador, who was uh, quite critical of Dominic Barton's comments. How much of what Dominic Barton had to say would probably align with or give Canadians a sense of what our government's policy is. Is it along those lines that, you know, there are great opportunities for Canadian businesses, it's good for the Canadian economy as a whole to have relationships with China, or is it a case of that maybe, like we saw with his predecessor, John McCallum, that maybe a little too full-throated a defense of China at a time when Canada may be wanting to take a more critical or discerning look to that country? It's hard to say. I mean, certainly, I haven't heard anyone in government to, uh, sort of refute what he was saying or, or try to put out a, a different sort of message. So, I mean, you know, I think Dominic Barton is a very skillful diplomat, you know, seems to be a very political individual. I would imagine that what he is saying reflects the government's approach to China. I mean, one can never know for sure, I guess, uh, you know, what's going on behind the scenes, whether he did go a step too far or not. But I mean, it, it seems to represent the government on this. As I said, they certainly haven't sort of suggested the prime minister or Mark Garneau certainly have not suggested otherwise. So I suspect we, we can assume this is this could be indicative of the government's policy going forward. One of the things you raised earlier was the talk of whether there's interference in our democratic process by Chinese actors, either here or abroad. There was a lot of concern during the election that that may have cost some conservative MPs their seats and because of the party's kind of hard stance on China. But also even in the wake of the federal election, there's talk among some conservative members and, and even former candidates that Aaron O'Toole needs to go because of his anti-China stance. Can you kind of break down some of these issues that are at play when it comes to our opposition party and why there's so much concern within that party over the leader's stance on China? Yeah, sure. And and it's a complicated story. But um, just to give a bit of background, I mean, we know because of pronouncements from Beijing, there's a branch of the Communist Party called the United Front Work Department, which one of its main goals is to sort of spread Chinese influence throughout the world and, you know, work with the Chinese diaspora and in other countries and with, you know, political uh, leaders to try to sort of quietly, I think often covertly sort of extend Chinese influence. So we know that's happening. It's not often 
overt. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think you might see hints of this when organizations that are close to Chinese diplomats sort of make statements that, for instance, reflect China's policy on, on controversial issues. So that's sort of the background. But this issue, I think, has come up largely around comments made by Kenny Chu, who was the conservative MP for one of the Richmond, BC ridings. He won the last in the last election two years ago. He lost this time to a liberal by 3,000 votes, so it wasn't really close. He blames his defeat largely on disinformation that he said was spread sort of far and wide within the Chinese community on WeChat, which is a Chinese social media site, and in, in Chinese language media disinformation about the conservative policies and, for instance, about a private member's bill that he introduced that was designed to sort of have, you know, agents for foreign governments register themselves. And it was portrayed sometimes as, oh, this is going to mean that any, any Chinese-Canadian person that has any kind of dealing with China will have to be registered, which was, you know, totally not the case. He believes that that kind of disinformation and sort of attacks on him and, and the Conservative Party for being not just anti-Communist Party of China, but anti-Chinese, that that led to his defeat. And there were two other writings, another one in Richmond, B.C., and one in Markham, Ontario, that have large Chinese-Canadian populations where the conservative candidates also lost. He suspects that similar dynamics were at play there. Fast forward a bit, and, and there was a very interesting news conference, as you alluded to a few days ago, from a group called the Chinese-Canadian Conservative Association, which has sort of over the years has kind of encouraged Chinese-Canadians to get involved in conservative politics. And they were calling for Aaron O'Toole to resign as leader and, and, and blamed the tough-on-China aspects of the Tory platform for the defeat of these three candidates. They weren't alleging disinformation, they were saying those policies, you know, turned off a lot of Chinese Canadian voters. You know, in the course of saying this, they sort of voiced some opinions about China-related affairs that, you know, were interesting, I think controversial, you know, maybe reflected in some ways uh, China's own sort of uh, stance on issues like human rights in Taiwan. So, yeah, some interesting dynamics going on within the party. The return of the two Michaels, while good news for many Canadians, obviously good news for them and their families, but I think a lot of Canadians were happy to see that they were able to come home. They were not the only two Canadians who are currently being detained in China. One name that is also mixed in with theirs around the arrest of Meng Wanzhou was Robert Schellenberg. He was convicted on drug trafficking charges in China and... The government appealed his sentence and he went from having to serve a jail term to being sentenced to death. Where is his case at now in the wake of all this? You know, is there a chance that he could get clemency or because of the nature of his conviction and his charges that he may still lose his life to this dispute between Canada and China? I think his case has maybe not got as much attention as it should. And, and I should, first of all, just be very clear about what happened with him, because I think some people misunderstand this and think he's the author of his own misfortune, you know, drug dealing in a place like China, you know, which is true to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. But just to be clear, before Meng Wanzhou was arrested, his case had gone through the Chinese legal system and he was convicted and sentenced to a 15-year jail term. So they had pretty much done with his case. He had appealed the conviction, and that appeal was sort of pending. 
after Meng Wanzhou was arrested, and then I can't remember the exact time, but within a, like a week or two, suddenly the Chinese prosecutors announced that they were appealing. And not only that, but this was reported in Chinese state-run media as a case that had been quite sort of uh, obscure and unreported. And, and they even invited foreign media to come to the appeal hearing, which, again, is you know very, very unusual. And then at this uh, appeal hearing, which lasted, I think, an hour or so, while well, the initial hearing was very short, a new trial was ordered, which occurred a few days later. And then at that trial, which happened again very quickly, he was sentenced now to death. That's where his case stands, essentially, and his appeals have all uh, failed. It seems clear that this was linked to, to the Meng Wanzhou arrest. However, as part of whatever deal was brokered that saw the two Michaels released, nothing was said about his case. And nothing has been said, certainly by China, about his case since then. The official government line is that we're lobbying about his case and dealing with officials sort of at the highest level. But certainly we've not heard anything publicly about the possibility of this death sentence being revoked. Interestingly, I spoke to an expert on the Chinese legal system at uh, UBC who, who sort of said, well, you know, the two Michaels were freed because the Americans got involved and Joe Biden basically said that their release has to be part of this deal. I mean, we don't know that for sure, but that, I think that, that seems like reasonable speculation. And, and this expert said, said Biden was unlikely to have gone to bat for Robert Schellenberg, a convicted drug trafficker. So therefore, he was not part of the agreement. So that's where it stands now. And yeah, I mean, it's unclear what will happen with his case. He has one more sort of avenue to try to get this overturned the sort of the last step before people are executed in China is the Supreme People's Court sort of reviews the death sentence and in virtually every case they confirm it. So mm-hmm. there's not a lot of hope in that, but I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens. It's a sad bit of a much, much larger story that I know Canadians are focusing more on now than they perhaps have in past years. Tom, thanks for your time. Okay, thank you. 103 is produced by Sean Knox, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Tom Blackwell. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. <laughs>